Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Len Osanic. Today, we are speaking to Jacob, the Future of Freedom Foundation. Uh, the FFF Daily is a newsletter that I get. And uh, welcome to the show, Jacob. Oh, it's great to be back again. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be with you, Len. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I, you know, I always like to promote anyone doing good work in JFK research, particularly. Uh, your website has uh, a lot of political things intrigue. So national security, economics, taxation, free market, foreign policy. So there's there's a lot there. I will make links to this. People can go check out your work. Um, yeah, there was uh, one article that I did want to talk about. We'll get to that in a bit. First of all, what I did want to talk about is that um, your interest in the JFK assassination, and I did something called 50, years for, 50 Reasons for 50 Years back in 2013, and now I see that you are doing um, something a little more in-depth, and it is the JFK assassination 60 years later. And you have several episodes up at the website, uh, which caught my eye. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, talk about that, promote it. And um, I guess first question would be, what in, what inspired you? What was the motivation to make a series about the JFK assassination 60 years later? Well, I've done a lot of work on the Kennedy assassination as part of our work at the Future of Freedom Foundation. I mean, we're a libertarian organization, and as part of that libertarian philosophy, we favor a limited government republic, which was a type of governmental structure that our country was founded on. We had a limited government republic for 150 years or so, and it consisted of just a small basic military force. And that changed after World War II to what we call a national security state, which is a giant permanent military intelligence establishment with omnipotent totalitarian-like powers, like powers of assassination and torture and indefinite detention. So uh, I, I ultimately learned – I never knew any, that there was controversy over the Kennedy assassination until around 1991 – this was about the, the second year of the Future Freedom Foundation's existence, and I just happened to go watch Oliver Stone's movie JFK, not having any idea that it was about what it was about. I thought it was just a biography of John Kennedy or something, and so uh, and I had campaigned for Kennedy and Johnson as a kid, as a native Texan. I think I was in the fifth grade, and so I thought, well, I'm going to go see this interesting movie, and well, I that movie blew me away, and so... Over the years, I just started doing reading and research, and ultimately, we started having conferences on the Kennedy assassination that I would invite people to see. We, I think we've put on some of the best conferences on the assassination and the national security state that, uh, that has ever been put on by any organization, and they're on our website at fff.org. And then we've also published some books. My most recent book is called uh, An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder Story. But I've also written a book called The Kennedy Autopsy, which is our all-time bestseller. Uh, the Kennedy Autopsy 2 was a supplement. And then a book by Doug Horn called um, JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated, that goes to motive. We've got a book by uh, Jefferson Morley called CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files. So we've done a lot of work in this, but here we are in the 60th year, and I said, you know, what can I do here? And I know there's going to be a bunch of conferences and everything, but I thought, you know, I can, 
I can use this year to sort of be present a summary of everything we've done here, at least I've done with respect to the Kennedy assassination, and just through a weekly series of 30 minutes each, building the case for the, the real nature of this regime change operation. And most of it will revolve around the autopsy, because to me, the autopsy is the key to understanding the who of this assassination. They're inextricably bound up together, the, the national security state and the autopsy. And so if you can prove that the autopsy was fraudulent, which it's easy to prove at this point, after all the evidence that came out in the 1990s with the Assassination Records Review Board. Uh, so I thought that's what I would do. I'd just start this series explaining that, you know, how America became a military nation, how the, the military really controls what's going on here, along with the CIA, the military intelligence establishment, and why they needed to get rid of Kennedy. And that's the real, the, the important issue of the assassination is the why. But then key in on the autopsy to show people that they really did do it. And that's the thrust of my series. And I figure it's going to go on for a while. It's probably going to maybe end up ending in around November 22nd. Very good. Maybe you'll have 60 of them. I mean, you're up to episode four right now. Is that correct? Correct. And I've, I've already recorded, uh, let's see, about seven. Uh, oh, but, very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, like I say, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, I may agree or, or disagree on certain points that a lot of people, but I'm interested in, you know, honest research and, and what have people found and what conclusions can you draw to this? And um, like you, 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 the thing I think catches everybody is that the government story is so implausible. I mean, it's just not believable. And when people hold up the Commission Exhibit 399, you say, well, no matter what happened, that bullet didn't do, you know, all these wounds. So you start looking into it. But they're sticking to it, Right. I mean, they're, they're fighting tooth and nail to release documents 60 years later. Well, that's what's phenomenal, is that, um, that they really want to keep records secret after all these years. I mean, they have to be incriminating because they know what people are going to be thinking about this. I mean, the thought that national security would be jeopardized by the release of records that are 60 years old is just ludicrous. And uh, but that was one of the flaws in the JFK Records Act, which which was really brought about because of Oliver Stone's Moody JFK. And that one of the flaws in that law was that the ARRB Assassination Records Review Board, which was charged with enforcing the law against the Pentagon, the CIA and Secret Service and FBI and so forth. It goes out of existence in 1999, I believe. But they have another 25 years to keep their record secret. And so when that 25-year deadline comes up, the ARRB is not around anymore to enforce the And that was one of the real flaws in the, in the whole operation here. And they've benefited from it because they've kept these records secret. And like I say, there is no doubt in my mind that they're incriminating. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a confession or something like that. That would be ridiculous. Uh, early on, their their policy on state-sponsored assassinations was never put anything into writing. So you're not going to find a confession. But I, I see the Kennedy assassination is a great big jigsaw puzzle. And you put all these puzzles together and you, pieces of the puzzle together. And you let's say you only have 80% of the puzzle done. Well, okay, you're still missing a lot of pieces and there's gaps, but you can tell, hey, this is this puzzle is of the Eiffel Tower, you know, if it's a real jigsaw puzzle, even though you're missing 20% of the pieces. Well, it's the same with the Kennedy assassination. 
if the, the pieces that are available that have now been put together definitely establish that this was a national security state regime change operation. And my hunch is that these records that they're still keeping secret after 60 years, they know that they just provide additional pieces to the puzzle that are going to further fill out that mosaic. Right. So in a nutshell, what you're saying is as more records are released, it does not uh, throw any more guilt on Lee Oswald. It's only going to uh, show how, you know, his innocence and how he was what he called himself a patsy. Well, that's right. That's all, you know, because I'm very, I know a lot of people will say, well, I have this theory or that theory, you know, and, and I've always leaned to Alan Dulles. I thought that this has to be organized by somebody from the top who had uh, a motive. And, you know, Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles, Sullivan Cromwell, the, you know, lawyer, law firm for the biggest business in America. And, you know, big businesses who who Kennedy was up, you know, battling Wall Street, um, you know, Steel, NASA, the Department of Defense, uh, TFX fighter programs, you know, Boeing. I mean, you just name the enemies and there's a there's a list of them. Right. And uh, that's who I usually say. I say, you know, Kennedy was removed by his enemies. Do an investigation of who his enemies were. And it wasn't Lee Oswald. Yeah, no, you're. You're absolutely right. One thing about Kennedy, he sure knew how to make enemies. He was was an amazing guy uh, in terms of standing for what he believed was right. Um, But, you know, I I was reading a lot of books when I got into this on all the different enemies he had made and and the different possibilities of people who might have assassinated him. And a lot of the assassination researchers made a lot of great points, and I learned a lot from all the books. But there was always something missing. I just, I just felt like they just none of the researchers had really put the whole thing together. They put a large part of it together, and then I came across Douglas Horn's five-volume book inside the Assassination Records Review Board. And Horn had served on the staff of the ARRB, and he published this book about ten years after his service there. And I start reading. Book and I'm, it's a five-volume book. It's massive. It's like coffee table size. And I'm reading volume one, volume two, volume three. And I was trained as a lawyer, so I'm I'm reading this very carefully and analytically as a lawyer would. And I get to volume five, and I said, "I'll be darned! This guy's put the whole thing together." And and that for me is why Horn's book is such a watershed. In fact, I dedicated both two of my books, the Kennedy Autopsy and an Encounter with Evil, to Douglas Horn. Um, the, the guy was the guy is fearless. He has a, this relentless quest for truth. He's not worried about what people think about him. He goes where the evidence leads. If people call him a conspiracy theorist, he doesn't care. It, and so I and I recognize this in his book. And so when I realized that the reading Horn's book, I realized that the autopsy was key here because. Horn definitely establishes a fraudulent autopsy. Well, if there's one, and we can go into what those examples of fraud are, some of them, but there's one undisputed fact in this entire assassination scenario, and that is that it was the military or the national security establishment that conducted the autopsy. It wasn't the mafia, it wasn't the Cubans, the Soviets, uh, it wasn't anybody else but the military. And that plan for a fraudulent autopsy, as I'm explaining in this series I've started, was actually launched at Parkland Hospital the minute Kennedy was declared dead. 
And so once I realized that this was a fraudulent autopsy and that it was launched at Parkland, that left me with no alternative but to conclude that this was a national security state regime change operation because there's no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. None. I mean, the, the military's never come up one. They never will come up with one. How do you explain the need to conduct a fraudulent autopsy? And that's what I keep telling people. You don't have, if, you, if you're not convinced that this was a regime change operation, you don't have to go and study what happened in Dealey Plaza and the bullet trajectories and the magic bullet and so all this. All you have to do is just focus in on the autopsy and see what they did there. And then it's case closed. Because like I say, there's no innocent explanation for a fraudulent autopsy. And that's why Horn's book was the, the clincher for me. He put it all together, especially with respect to the medical evidence. Yeah, uh, Doug's well-respected. You know, he's done some work uh, on the Zapruder film, and some people have, you know, it's hard to really point out how much of the Zapruder film has been doctored. If you say anything has been doctored, then, you you know, what do you believe? But, you know, there's uh, there's something wrong from frames missing to uh, the whole obfuscation of, you know, is there something in the back of the head? And then some people saying, well, there's a, there's a floating mat. They must have covered it over. I mean, there's there's many explanations. You could say somebody took the original negatives and just colored in. And then, but then, you know, then you're not, what are you supposed to believe? If any tampering has done, then like you say, who who has the film? The security state. And why are they keeping, you know, it was lucky we even got it released, really, if not for Jim Garrison. Well, what you're saying is, is correct. In fact, that is the, the subject of my, my latest book, which I consider the best work I've done in the 33 years I've been with FFF. And it's called An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story. And I explain what exactly, exactly happened with that film. And the inspiration, again, was, was uh, Doug Horn. Because there's a lot of assassination researchers that just would not go down this road because it's it appears to be so outlandish. I mean, it's one thing to say that they carried out the assassination, but to then take it another step and say they altered the film. I mean, you're going to get all the conspiracy theory accusations that you could ever hope to get. But Horn didn't, he didn't care. The evidence established that they took control over this film, something that they kept secret for really close to 50 years that the whole, it was really Horn and, and an author named Peter Janney who authored the book, uh, Mary's Mosaic. They were the guys that discovered the final piece of evidence that established that the CIA had taken control over this film and had shipped it first to Washington, DC. That was on Saturday night and then shipped it to Rochester, New York. See, nobody knew this. That no, nobody even knew the Washington, D.C. connection. But the, the big connection was they ship it to Rochester, New York. Now, why Rochester? This is late Saturday night on the weekend of the assassination. Well, that was where the, the CIA had a top-secret photographic center in the middle of Kodak's headquarters in Rochester. Uh, the, the, the top photographic expert for the CIA was a guy named Dino Brugioni. And he, he told Horn that at this facility called Hawkeye Works, that was the secret name for it, they could do anything Hollywood could do. And that's where they made an altered copy of the film to delete certain frames and to um, 
alter the, the back of the head so that it would match the fraudulent photograph showing the back of Kennedy's head to be intact, when in fact, countless witnesses, as I recount in my book, said that he had a massive exit size hole in the back of his head. Um, but that's where they did the alteration. And then they shipped it back to Washington on Sunday. And, and Horn documents all this, not through speculation and not through theories, but through the testimony of, of the people that saw it on Sunday night, the altered copy, and the statements of this guy, Dino Brugioni, the CIA's foremost photographic expert, that said he saw the film on Saturday night. Well, Brugioni, in a, in a video that he does with, with Horn, is shown the Zabruder film. And, and Brugioni, who, like I say, I mean, you can Google this guy. His credentials are just out the, you know, unbelievably impressive. He says, that's not the film I saw. I saw a different, different film that had different frames, like on the headshot. Because <laughs> on, the, on the extant film, there's only one frame that shows the headshot. And, and Brugioni says, no, 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 there was more frames on the film I saw. So that's how we know that they took possession of the film. And so when you combine the fraudulent film with the fraudulent autopsy, it's, I mean, to me, it was sufficient just with the fraudulent autopsy. But when I figured out the fraudulent film and that Horn was right about this, I decided to write a second book called An Encounter with Evil, the Abraham Zabruder story that really wraps it all up. I mean, there's, there's no real doubt anymore about this assassination based on these two things. And that's what the thrust of my series is. I want to, I want to present this series in a very simple, easy to understand way that, that people can relate to. Um, like I say, I, I, I practiced law for many years, so I'm, I'm essentially presenting a case um, as if I were in court saying, this is the evidence. You, you're the jury and you decide. And along the way, I'll make some jury arguments as to why you can't conclude anything but that this was criminal activity. And I start out with the early introduction of President Kennedy's body into the Bethesda morgue which was very suspicious, as needless to say, uh, an event that, that the ARRB documented through the testimony of a Marine sergeant. Yeah, it's really unbelievable the, the things that people have picked up just from reading uh, the Warren Commission and getting some of this testimony and, uh, you know, just taking the body out of there from Parkland when they wanted to do an autopsy there. And it was like, no. No, you know, and uh, you're not going to do that. And uh, it's really against the law to do that. I mean, where the murder happened, that's that's where the even where the trial should be. So for them to say, well, we're just going to have a blue ribbon commission. We're going to look into it. Forget about having it in the state of Texas. Right. Oh, no, it, it's a phenomenal thing. And it really goes to show the criminal culpability here that uh, let me let me detail what happened for your listeners in case they don't know. I mean, it's really shocking that. This was a straight murder case under Texas law. The federal government had no jurisdiction over this crime. It was not an offense. So what, what happened was that this, the federal government had no jurisdiction over this crime at all. There, it was not a federal offense to assassinate the president. It was, a, it was a straight murder case under Texas state law. And so Texas law required that an autopsy be conducted on the body. And so the Dallas County Medical Examiner, as soon as Kennedy's declared dead, announces he's going to conduct this autopsy. And at that moment, a team of Secret Service agents headed by a man named Roy Kellerman. Now, Kellerman was the, in the passenger seat of the limousine in which Kennedy was riding. 
And after the first shot hit Kennedy, which was not a fatal shot at all, um, Kellerman should have jumped over the seat and covered him with his body. That's what Secret Service agents are supposed to do. And instead, he just looked back and stared at Kennedy and, Kennedy and sat there like a bump on the log and um, until Kennedy was hit in the head. And then he and William Greer, the driver, take off to Parkland. Well, here's the same guy, Kellerman, at Parkland sporting a Thompson submachine gun that tells Rose under no certain certain under no circumstances is he going to permit an autopsy to be conducted on Kennedy's body and that they're going to take this body back to Washington. He says he's operating under orders. And Rose stands his ground, says, no, you're not taking this body out. You can't lose the chain of custody on the body. You have to do an autopsy here. Texas law requires it. And at that point, the other Secret Service agents pull their jackets back to brandish their guns. And so it's clear that they're threatening deadly force against people who are, this is a hospital. And one Secret Service agent, presumably a very large one, picks up Rose physically, carts him over to a nearby wall, puts him down and wags his finger in his face. And there's screaming, there's yelling, there's profanities. People said they were scared to death, but they push that casket out of there, a big, heavy, ornate casket. They push it out of Parkland. They put it in the back of a vehicle there from the funeral home, and they head on to Dallas Love Field where Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, the new president, is waiting for it. And he's, he's actually told personnel to remove seats from the back of Air Force One to make room for the casket. Well, that means when you put two and two together here, and this is my lawyer mind working, it had to be Johnson that issued the order. Remember that Kellerman said he's operating under orders. There's no way that a Secret Service team is going to do something like that on their own. They're going to work with law enforcement. An autopsy is like critical evidence in a homicide case. Law enforcement are going to work together on an assassination of a president. Well, but not if a president orders the Secret Service to do this. And it was clearly Johnson that issued this order. And then when you connect that with what Johnson does when he lands at Andrews Air Force Base, he then delivers this body into the hands of the military. And it's all considered normal, Ed. It's like nobody questions it. The mainstream press doesn't question it. But, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why the military? This is a civilian country. There's plenty of forensics pathologists in the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, I'd say there's probably a higher concentration than any any other place in the country. Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., Instead of calling one of those and saying we're going to head on over to some civilian hospital in the area, he delivers the body into the hands of the military. And then we, we get this early introduction of the body, a secret introduction, an introduction that they don't even acknowledge today. That, that, came, that there was actually, The body was brought into the morgue twice, but the official version is, oh, no, it was only brought in at 8 p.m., one time. Well, there's overwhelming evidence that conclusively establishes that's just a lie. It was actually brought in a, a first time at 6.35 p.m. Well, when you connect all this together, you see that what's happening at Parkland is just part of the plot. It's part of the plan to get this body into the hands of the military so that they can falsify the results of, of the autopsy. And normally you wouldn't think it would be uh, so blatant. But through recent events and revelations about uh, uh, just <laughs> what the government's doing behind the people's back or against them, right, even with uh, 
was uh, I'm thinking of some of the, the Twitter files revelations and then never mind Edward Snowden and things you go, wow, like they are on their own agenda. Well, and it what really wasn't that that blatant uh, because they were able to keep things so secret. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I turned it over to the military. The, the, the military is able to keep secrets and they have this process of classified operations you tell a soldier that an operation is classified, he's gonna he's gonna take it to the grave with him. I mean, you talk to some Vietnam veteran today that had access to classified information, and he won't reveal it to you. Uh, he knows what classified means. You take it with you to the grave. And so, what they did in this autopsy was they swore all of the enlisted men that were involved in this to secrecy, and they and one of them said they put the fear of God in us. They forced them to sign secrecy oaths, written secrecy oaths. And then they threatened them that if you ever talk about what you saw here, we will, uh, we will send you away for a long time to a brig if you're still in the military, to a penitentiary if you're in civilian life. You will never talk. And if that had remained the case, I think they would have gotten away with the fraudulent autopsy. But what happened was when... After Geraldo Rivera showed the Zabruder film on national TV in 75, which had been kept secret, you know, for, for all this time by Life magazine, and that's a completely different story. That's part of the Zabruder story. Um, that people were so outraged when they saw the, the Zabruder film on national TV, and you have that back into the left movement, which implied clearly a, fr a shot from the front. That forced the House Select Committee on assassinations to have a new investigation. And so they did. And But in the process of doing that, Lynn, they started releasing these enlisted men from their vows of secrecy. And that's when some of these enlisted men started talking and telling a remarkable story. These were Navy enlisted men that said, we carried the president's body into the morgue in a shipping casket. And, and he was in a body bag. Well, in Dallas, he was not in a shipping casket. He was placed in a heavy, big, funeral-type, ornate casket and in with, wrapped in white sheets. So here are these enlisted men saying, well, no, we, we brought him in in a shipping casket. Well, then the Assassination Records Review Board ultimately forms in response to Oliver Stone's movie JFK and the JFK Records Act. They discover the existence of a guy named Roger Boygen. Uh, and Boygen had been sworn to secrecy just like everybody else there. And Boygen told the ARRB a remarkable story. He says, I was in charge of a Marine security detail that night at Bethesda National Naval Medical Center, and the body was brought in at 6.35 p.m. Well, this confirmed what the Navy guys had been saying um, that brought in a shipping casket. So the, remember, the official narrative is that there is only one introduction of the body into the morgue, and that's at 8 p.m. These guys are saying, no, it was brought in at 6.35 p.m. And then the ARRB discovered a memorandum from Gawler's Funeral Home, this prestigious funeral home in Washington, D.C., that performed the embalming. That memorandum said, President's body brought in in a shipping casket. Uh, so... All of a sudden, now, oh, yeah, and Boyajin says, they, they asked him, do you have any corroboration for this story? It's a pretty remarkable story. And he says, yeah, I kept a copy of my after-action report that I submitted to him, to, to the military, to his superiors. So 
here this, this organized Marine had kept a copy of his report. And it was a report that the military never turned over to the ARRB as they were required to by the JFK Records Act. They still haven't turned over that report. My hunch is they destroyed it very quickly. But here this man had a copy. And there is the report that says body brought in at 6.35 p.m. Well, none of this would have been discovered if it hadn't been for the ARRB and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. I think they would have gotten away with all the secrecy. So my only point is, is that they did a pretty good job of covering this thing up for a long period of time. And, of course, by the time all the evidence surfaces, like in the 90s, that's when Boygen uh, appears before the ARRB or communicates with them, the mainstream press is, has fallen into line. I mean, this this is a perfect opportunity for any investigative reporter in the country. I mean, imagine a Marine sergeant that is is absolutely questioning with his statement the official narrative. I mean, that's pretty big news that the body is sneaked in early. I mean, the, any investigative reporter worth his salt would say, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Is this guy lying? Is he making up this story? Certainly the military didn't accuse Boygen of lying. They just kept real quiet. And, and a lot of people were still living that had, had been involved in the autopsy when Boygen talked to the ARRB in the 90s. So, but the mainstream press would not get involved. They, they had fallen in the line. You defer to the military. You defer to the CIA. They don't want us talking about these things. And so we're just not going to investigate them and we're not going to report on them. And that's why this story of the early introduction of the body has just sort of been airbrushed out of history. Uh, well, I'm bringing it back. I mean, that's part of my series is to show the things that have been established really beyond any reasonable doubt by the evidence and let people make their own conclusions based on that evidence. But darn sure you can't count on the mainstream press to do this. You can only count on shows like yours to do things like this. Well, I was very interested that uh, you, it says in your biography here that you had uh, done some stuff with uh, Judge... Uh, Napolitano. Judge Napolitano, yeah, right. And um, evidently he got a call from... Uh, Donald Trump and and he bugged him. He said, "When are you going to release these files?" And he said to him, "If you've seen what I've saw, you realize well we can never release these." Yeah, that that's a fascinating remark because you would think that that would be pretty big news. <laughs> now, you know, I got to say I'm a little bit doubtful that that Trump actually read these files and saw something really enormously incriminating. I, I think, like I said earlier, these are pieces to the puzzle. I don't think there's some gigantic confession or some monumental piece of evidence that somebody would look at and say, oh yeah, they did this. So I, I think Trump may be doing some exaggerating or puffing here. But notice that the mainstream press has never gone to Trump and say, what is it that you saw? Tell us what you saw. And I, I, I wish somebody would pressure Trump and maybe in the course of this campaign, somebody will pressure him into revealing what he saw. Why, why shouldn't he disclose it to the American people? Why, why keep it secret? I mean, this is 60-year-old stuff. Well, because it's still going on to this day, you know. You wonder how many, uh, quote, accidents have happened. I mean, look at, I mean, it, it's almost a humorous joke when people talk about Jeffrey Epstein. And the only thing that's a secret is his client list. And then people chuckle. Yeah, right. Yeah, but look at that. And uh, and how many other people have been bumped off, right? Michael Hastings, you know, just Julian Assange in jail for life. Who knows? 
uh, Ed Snowden fleeing to the Russia. You know, imagine that fleeing to Russia as a safe haven from the American government. Well, he he didn't actually flee there. He was he was actually in transit to a South American country. Right. I I, I know. Got yeah, I know there. the details. But that's the thing. Well, they revoked his passport. That's right. That, now or that's, citizenship that's the or point. whatever. So I mean, at least Vladimir Putin said, "You are a political prisoner. We'll give you amnesty here." Yeah. That, no, that's absolutely right. That that he, he he's he's essentially in exile, and and they. They would love to bring him back and put him in a penitentiary for the rest of his life for doing nothing more than disclosing criminal activity on the part of the national security establishment. And the same with Assange. I mean, all Assange did was report the criminal activities, the war crimes of the national security establishment. But these two guys are considered the criminals, that the national security establishment is considered the good entity here. Uh, that This is what, the remember I said earlier that when this conversion to a national security state form of governmental structure has really perverted the values of this country. The values are upside down. When you see people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden sitting in a penitentiary or sitting in exile in Russia, you know that something is wrong with this system because these are totally innocent people. They, they don't belong in where they are. They, they really should be praised and, and honored for what they've done. But this is what life is like to live in a military nation where the, the military intelligence establishment really is in control. Well, and like you mentioned, what they're revealing is crime, right? They're not saying, here's our secret, here's our, uh, you know, our tactics, should we be going to war or something like that. No, they're revealing these criminal acts, right? And, uh, you know, it started off with that uh, helicopter ship just shooting all these people up, uh, you know, and then uh, when the people went to try to uh, ambulance and whatnot to, to tend to them, they shot them up too, right? And, okay, it's war crime after war crime. So, um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating really... that they're, they, 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 they call for Russian troops who commit war crimes to be tried for those crimes, and rightly so. If they've committed crimes, they should be. But notice they never call for the, the prosecution of these helicopter pilots that, that murdered these people. I mean, they should be brought up on war crimes, too, and, and, and laughing about it. I mean, it's just it, it's abhorrent. But that's why they're angry, because these people, Assange and Snowden, were revealing their dark side secrets. And that's considered verboten in a military nation. Right. Our secrets are our secrets. And I think that what happened was uh, when Clapper went to testify in the heads of NSA and things like that. They said, no, we are not doing this. We were, in a, we were not spying on Americans. We were not going through all your, uh, you know, your messages and all that. Um, uh, that's what was the final straw, I think, for Ed Snowden, where he said, you, you guys have just gone too far now. You're out of control. And I, I think that Elon Musk is doing the same thing where he learns some things and he said, this is just beyond what people even have the slightest hint of is going on. They're spying on everybody and then they're opening up wings to put in a censorship where we're going to ban you, we're going to shadow ban you, or we're going to you know, delete your account. You can't even talk about certain things, for instance, with COVID or anything that maybe Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. would be talking about in, uh, you know, vaccines or whatever. You're just, we're going to call you an anti-vaxxer, and we're going to make sure that any of your lectures or speeches or any information you have is removed, like, for instance, from YouTube. But we're talking about Twitter as well. So not only 
they can't take the heat, but they want to change the, the playing field. So you don't have a hope of if you discover something that is, quote, a criminal or wrongdoing, there's no way you're going to be able to report it. And they're trying to make an example, I think, with uh, Julian Assange just saying, look, it, you, know, you report this and this is what will happen. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they, these are the these are the examples that they need to s- send to everybody else that works within the national security establishment that is even thinking about releasing information about their dark side secrets. They're essentially saying, if you do it, this is what's going to happen to you. Look at what we've done to Assange. Look at what we've done to Snowden. Uh, and so don't even think about going down that road. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Clapper because when Clapper made that statement to the, to the Congress saying, oh, well, we're, no, we're not engaged in mass secret surveillance here. Never in his wildest dreams did he think that a Snowden would pop up. And so he thought he could get away with his perjury without any problems. And then Snowden pops up and it's clear he's committed perjury. But notice they don't go after after the guy that's committed perjury. They don't do anything to him. Uh, in fact, he's still honored and praised and everything, even though he clearly lied under oath. The bad guy is Snowden. But they need to send a message to everybody else in the national security establishment. Don't ever think about releasing our secrets because this is what will happen to you. Totally agree with you on that. And then the poverty of that is when the American public is on the 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 paying end of a hundred billion to Ukraine, you think, oh well, is the CIA and the State Department behind the coup in twenty fourteen? Are they behind all this? And are they provoking? And and now their whole game is to you know start something where there wasn't anything, and now. Uh, everything is Russia, Russia Gate, everything, you know, and, and billions and billions spent into that. And if somebody wants to reveal that, no, this is actually a fraud, right? Um, and and uh, you get into, you know, Trump as a, a Russian agent and all that, right? And and it goes on and on. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, for instance, I don't really like Trump, but the longer it goes on, I'm becoming having a little empathy, you know, saying, you know, they have, they were just making this up uh, hand over fist. It just, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, I still, still don't condone that. But then the other side of the coin is like, my God, uh, Biden, he, he's, um, he's asleep at the wheel. And I, I'm not very happy the way he went after uh, Ed Snowden and tried to, um, I mean, so many things, I don't know too much about it, but I know that was studying the effort he made into trying to get every country to not accept Snowden, you know, and uh, just bullying everybody. And, you know, the, the backlash of that is that now there's going to be a new currency. China and Russia have gone together and uh, they're making bricks and, um, you know, the American dollar. And now <laughs> June 1st is going to be another uh, debt ceiling, but we're just going to print more money. We're going to give $100 billion to Ukraine when people uh, are sleeping under bridges and... Uh, Half the trains aren't even working. Forget the bridges; they may fall down. Uh, it's it's just uh, incredible that this crumbling of of uh, what you thought was, uh, you know, a great country, is just failing since the murder of John Kennedy. And you think, wow, has it ever keep it keeps sliding backwards and backwards? And now the best you have is Biden. I mean, that's the best you have to offer. And then the opposite of that is like Trump, you know, and it's like. Uh, you know, God. And so we mentioned that Robert Kennedy Jr. was going to run, right? And uh, 
geez, for his own safety, you know, I just think, I don't think you should run. Geez, I wish, I wish somebody like uh, Jesse Ventura had run, you know, or somebody that you could get, I could agree or I disagree, but at least I trust the guy. Like if somebody gets up and has a debate and you go, I don't really condone that. I don't stand for that, but I know you're trying to do the right thing. And there just hasn't been anybody like that. Well, I guess the Jeffrey Epstein shows how they've got that. They just get people into compromising positions, film them, you know, underage girls and things like that. And they said, you're going to vote this way from now on, right? It's just unbelievable that uh, Whitney Webb has written some books just detailing how the intelligence agency has been running things through this blackmail. I guess for me, it, it, it seemed that when you had an interest in Sean Kennedy of what a good leader he would be for America and for the world and for the world. And then it's all gone so sideways. And yet they have money for the industrialized military complex. They just keep printing it as if the, they're never going to run out of the paper. Well, that's right. I mean, because their expenses are constantly going up. I mean, these are voracious feeders at the public trough, uh, the so-called defense contractors and the whole establishment. But I'd like to address what you said about Ukraine, because, you know, the, the simplistic answer on Ukraine is Russia invaded, Russia bad, condemn Russia. And no, none of these people wants to look at the provocation that took place leading up to this. And that was the national security establishment, specifically the Pentagon that was using NATO at the ostensible end of the Cold War to absorb Eastern European countries, uh, inexorably moving eastward toward Russia's borders, knowing exactly how Russia would respond. You could say Russia's paranoid, and I would say, yeah, but sometimes paranoid people are followed. This was a country that it was invaded by Germany and lost millions upon millions of people in World War II. Um, they, they have reason to be paranoid about people getting ever closer with their missiles and so forth. And so, but the Pentagon just disregarded all that and they knew what they were doing. And Russia said, look, you cross our red line, our red line is Ukraine. You, you've absorbed all these Warsaw Pact countries, but our red line is Ukraine. You, in, you invite Ukraine to be in NATO and we're going to invade. And, and the Pentagon knew that. And they said, okay. Go ahead and do it. And they, and they invite Ukraine. They knew exactly the invasion was coming. And then they act like, oh, my God, we're shocked. Well, the reason this relates to the Kennedy assassination is because the Pentagon, the CIA were responsible for the same type of crisis in the Cuban Missile Crisis. You see, we're, we're all taught in our public schools that that crisis was caused by Cuba and the Soviet Union putting nuclear missiles there. That's just nonsense. It's just not true. The, the root of this crisis was the Pentagon and the CIA because the CIA had early on uh, persuaded Kennedy to invade Cuba. You know, this, this was a straight war of aggression. The U.S. had no right to be invading Cuba. That was at the Bay of Pigs. And that's when Kennedy got double-crossed and deceived by the CIA. After that fiasco, he, he vowed to tear the CIA into a thousand pieces and splinter them to the wind, scatter them to the winds. And then... After that, the military was pressuring Kennedy for a full-scale invasion of Cuba. Operation Northwoods, that's what that was about. Well, the Cubans knew this, that the, that the Pentagon and the CIA were pressuring Kennedy to invade. Therefore, Castro says, huh, I'm going to install nuclear missiles here to defend myself from what the, what the Pentagon and the, and, the, and, the, 
CIA want to do? If the CIA and the Pentagon had never pre been pressuring Kennedy to invade Cuba, there would have been no reason to put these missiles there. And the missiles were entirely for defense. And so the Soviets put the missiles there. Kennedy strikes a deal with them over the vehement objections of the military intelligence establishment. They were furious. They compared Kennedy to Neville Chamberlain. And they, they said, one of them said, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, this is one of the greatest, this is the greatest defeat in U.S. history when Kennedy struck the deal with, with the uh, Soviets because Kennedy, as part of this deal, said, I'm not going to permit the Pentagon and the CIA to invade Cuba. And I, you have my word on this. It's not going to happen. Well, they considered him a traitor, a betrayer, a coward, incompetent, and so forth. But notice something important. Why was the military and the CIA so insistent on Kennedy attacking Cuba during that crisis? Because they didn't want Soviet missiles pointed at America from 90 miles away. Now, if the United States is paranoid about nuclear missiles 90 miles away, why wouldn't the, the, the Russians be equally paranoid about having U.S. missiles right exactly on their border, much less 90 miles away? Nations don't like nuclear missiles pointed at them that are close by. And this is why this whole thing in, in Ukraine is such a disaster, because it's clear that this, the national security establishment has succeeded in reinvigorating their Cold War against both Russia and China. So now they've got the best worlds. They've got their Cold War racket back on, and they've got their war on terrorism racket back on. All of this, of course, to enrich those and empower those in the, in the national security establishment and their, their army of voracious defense contractors. And I put defense in quotation marks. Yeah, right. And, you know, to fund this, they just keep going to the American taxpayer, just print more money, just print more money. So how many times are they going to say, uh, we can't account for $2 trillion? I mean, we just can't account for it. But everybody go back to sleep, you know. And like I say, people living under bridges. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, the, the fiscal part of this. I mean, we're $31 trillion in debt. That's what the government is. This debt ceiling thing is coming up. A debt ceiling is a congressional acknowledgement that too much debt is a very dangerous thing. And yet every time it's reached, they just they just raise it up some more. And they're, sent, they, they, they're spending, what, some $2 trillion more than what they're bringing in. And yet they have more than enough money to send another hundred billion to Ukraine. Uh, yeah, and you're right. They either add it on to the debt or they print it up. I mean, that's the role of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's job from the very beginning in 1913 is to print the money to pay off the debt and to finance the expenditures that exceed their tax revenues. And that's why the dollar from 1913 all the way down through today, it's just a downward line. Its value has continually plummeted decade after decade after decade. And they're taking us down, Lynn. I mean, they're getting us precariously close to nuclear war, which exactly what they did in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. They think they can win a nuclear war, uh, which is so ludicrous. And, but they're, breaking, they're taking us down from within with monetary debauchery. I mean, that's the real threat. And this is what Americans just, to me, they don't realize. The threat to this country is not Russia, it's not China, it's not Syria, it's not the terror, it's not the illegal immigrants or the drug dealers. The real threat to this country lies with the national security establishment specifically and with the federal government in general. 
because they're taking us down with their out of control spending and getting us closer to nuclear war over there in, in, in Ukraine. And uh, when you say out of control spending, there used to be an idea of a whistleblower, someone that could come forward. And now there's, you know, this uh, anti-whistleblower legislation type thing where uh, you'll be locked away and uh, who knows where you'll go, you know, like a black site or something or just disappeared, you know. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's really unbelievable. And it's all around, uh, I think, what Kennedy was going up against. He, like Eisenhower warned of an industrialized military complex, uh, the likes of which that the normal American person uh, it doesn't even understand, you know, never mind try to fight against, right? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, and what was fascinating about Eisenhower, I mean, here's this guy, Allied Commanding General, West Point graduate. If anybody understood the military, it was Dwight Eisenhower. And he gives his farewell address out of the clear blue. I mean, it had to shock a lot of people where he says he acknowledges this change has taken place, that the conversion to a national security state. He called it a military industrial complex. It's the same thing. But he, he acknowledges the change, you see, which is different from the official version. The official version is, oh, there, there hasn't been a change. It's, it's still the same system we've always had. But then he says this system is a grave threat to the rights and liberties of the American people and to our democratic processes. Now, I don't know if he was re referring to a state-sponsored assassination there. My hunch is that he was probably referring to a coup uh, because then Kennedy comes into power and he reads this book called Seven Days in May, which is a fictional account of the military dealing with a president whose policies they felt were taking the country in a bad direction. So they wanted to take control. And Kennedy was so impressed with his novel that he got friends in Hollywood to turn it into a movie. And it's a great movie, Seven Days in May, starring Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, uh, Ava Gardner. It's really worth watching today. But the point is that Kennedy understood what Eisenhower understood, that this form of government is a grave threat to our democratic processes. And Kennedy found that out. I mean, Kennedy essentially went to war with the national security establishment after the Cuban Missile Crisis. He achieved a breakthrough. He said enough's enough. He had already lost any trust in the CIA. By this time, he lost total trust in the military. And he decided to end the Cold War and to establish friendly relations with the Soviet Union. Well, this was anathema. I mean, this is a president that is moving the country in a totally different direction from what the Pentagon and the CIA felt was necessary for national security. And there was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser. If Kennedy wins, he he's reelected in 64. He's got four more years to pull this off, establish normal relations with Russia and all the anti-Soviet, anti-Russia hostility that had been inculcated in the American people. His brother, Bobby, is going to most likely run in 68. The, the national security establishment knows they're finished unless they get rid of Kennedy. And so from their perspective, they needed to do what was necessary to remove Kennedy and elevate Johnson, who was on their same page. And so Johnson just continues what the national security establishment wanted, you know, expansion of the war in Vietnam, the Cold War continues, the anti-Russia hostility continues, everything continues as normal. But that's why they had to get rid of him. And this is why Doug Horn's book for us is so powerful. It's called JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why Kennedy Was Assassinated. 
it explains the motive here that from their perspective, they were faced with a president that was a threat to national security. Now, what do you do with a president who's a threat to national security? You can't impeach him because he hasn't done anything illegal. It's just his policy. The direction he's leading America is going to result in a communist takeover. That was their mindset. And so the only choice they had from their perspective is got to violently remove him from office and save the country and elevate Johnson and expand the war in Vietnam and continue the Cold War. And the debacle of the Vietnam War, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, I've just, you know, down the road, there hasn't been any, any, anything positive for American citizens. They just continue to lose, lose people. Oh, not only Americans, but people of the world. I mean, this is the biggest killing machine in history, I think, or at least one of the biggest killing machines. I mean, since, since 1947, when this conversion took place, they have killed literally millions of people around the world. I mean, when it comes to killing, they have made America number one. There, there's just no question about it. Uh, Martin Luther King was absolutely right when he said, this is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And it's, it's ironic that we, we honor King with names of streets and buildings and statues and a national holiday, but I don't think we've ever come to grips with what he said. This is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Nothing's changed. But what's, what's significant about Kennedy, Lynn, and, and I know you know this, is that if he had won this war, if they had not been able to assassinate him, we wouldn't have the problems with Ukraine and the war on terrorism and 9-11 and, uh, because there would have been no foreign interventionism under Kennedy. He, he, was, he was bringing the troops home out of Vietnam. He was establishing normalized relations with the communist world. He never would have sent tro troops in to Iraq and so forth. Uh, we would never have been where we are today if Kennedy's vision had prevailed. Now, the positive side of all this is that Kennedy provides a way out of it. That, that he was he was turning his back on this governmental structure known as a national security state. He was essentially discarding them, ignoring them. And uh, he was leading America in a very positive direction with respect to foreign policy. That's why they needed to get rid of him. But that provides a way out, that we, we can get out of this by dismantling this national security state. To me, that's the only solution. You're, you're not going to be able to reform the the Pentagon or the CIA or the NSA, you gotta just get rid of them. They're like a cancer. You know, you don't modify cancer, you get rid of cancer. And then you restore a limited government republic with just a small basic military force. You bring all the troops home from all the overseas bases. You discharge them into the private sector. You close all the foreign military bases, abandon Guantanamo, that's a disgrace. And you start closing military bases here domestically. That's, that's what nobody ever stops to think about. What do we need all these bases for domestically? What is their purpose? They don't serve any useful purpose except to house troops. Uh, well, you don't need those troops. There's, there is no threat by any nation state that, that can conceivably invade the United States. Nobody can do it. Russia, the, the, the big debacle really from the standpoint of the Pentagon and the CIA is that the Ukraine uh, war has shown that that the, the Russians are impotent. If, if they can't even conquer Ukraine or even a, a city in Ukraine, uh, how are they going to conquer Western Europe and England and the United States? So all this whole big scare that 
Russia was coming to get us again is really evaporated. China certainly doesn't have the military means to cross the Pacific Ocean and invade the United States. So there is no nation state that has the ability to invade this country. We should be taking advantage of this and dismantling all these domestic military bases. They serve no purpose and really just dismantle the whole national security establishment and restore a limited government republic. If we were to do that, we'd be well on our way to really putting this country back on the right road. Uh, yeah, but I'm just thinking all China has to do is just uh, stop using the U.S. dollar and, and turn theirs. I think, don't they own a third of the U.S. debt? Yeah, I don't know what the amount is, but it's huge. Yeah, it's, 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 it's they, they were the ones essentially. Right. I think they were the ones that financed the Iraq War. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, so. that's where Bush went to get his money. Um, and uh, but, you know, that's another thing: is why should government be in charge of money? I mean, look what they've done with it. Well, one thing that I did want to bring up: you've got a lot of trending posts here on your uh, the, the Future Freedom Foundation, and I uh, urge everyone to check it out. But one of the things that caught my interest was um, this latest thing that happened um, with Tucker Carlson that I was never really a fan of his, and probably from years ago I disliked him. But in the last six months, he seemed to be the only guy that was really kind of uh, at least creating a level playing field where he would talk about, uh, uh, you know, various topics without picking out one. But... Um, you have an article here that says, did the CIA and Pentagon put the quietus on Tucker? Meaning that uh, he may have just uh, had one guest on too many. I mean, Robert Kennedy Jr. was on last week and then he's fired. Tucker's fired. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, well, Carlson's an interesting guy. I mean, he's, he's a little too conservative for me. Uh, I'm a libertarian, but he was addressing issues that were likely to make the establishment very uncomfortable, uh, possibly even the, the officialdom in, in Fox News. But th in this article, I said, you know, th we don't really know why they fired him exactly. They haven't explained it. Uh, the popular conceptions are that, number one, he was bad-mouthing the executives at Fox, and that came out in this this trial, or the, dep the libel trial that they were faced with. And so it could... Could be the theory goes that those officials got mad at him for saying bad things about him, but that just doesn't stand to reason for me. I mean, it, it, you know, the these guys can't be so super sensitive that they're going to fire their top most popular commentator because he said bad things behind their back about him, or, or that he was bad mouthing his colleagues. Well, that goes on in every big company. But I so I just threw this out as a, as another theory. I mean, we know that the the military, the Pentagon, the CIA. Uh, really are running the show in this country. Uh, uh, there's a there's a great book called National Security and Double Government by a man named Michael Glennon. Now, Glennon is not your just standard crackpot. This guy is a professor of law at Tufts University, and he was served as counsel for the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he's written this book that I would recommend every American read. And his thesis is that the national security branch of the government, they're in charge. They're the ones running the government, and the other three branches are permitted the veneer of power, but uh, that's all it is. It's just a veneer, but they will always defer to the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. Um, so it's 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 a it's a ominous thesis. Well, so assuming that's true, that they're really in charge here, every company has to take into account what the wishes of the Pentagon and the CIA are, because 
if you don't, you, you can get destroyed. It, it, this, this is the entity that's running the federal government. That means they're in charge of the IRS, the Federal Trade Commission, the federal regulators. They can destroy any business they want. So here's Tucker Carlson out of the clear blue. I think it stunned a lot of people that has an entire show devoted to the Kennedy assassination on national television saying that the CIA participated, was involved in this assassination. Well, this was a shock because the mainstream press is not supposed to do that. I mean, it's just an unwritten rule. You, you can analyze the, the assassination. You can call people conspiracy theorists. You can analyze conspiracy theories. But don't you ever, ever, ever point the accusatory finger at the national security establishment. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any article in the mainstream press in the last 60 years that says, yeah, they did it. This is why I said earlier, they, they don't investigate Roger Boygen, the, the Marine sergeant that said we brought the body in earlier, those, those uh, Navy enlisted men. They, they just they understand that this is not what they're supposed to do, pursuant to the Pentagon and the CIA's orders. And so Carlson violates this rule, goes on national television and says the CIA did this thing. And I thought, oh, wow. And so then, you know, shortly after he's fired, it may have nothing to do with it, but I just thought I'd bring it up and throw in this possibility as well, that the Pentagon and the CIA did not like this. They, they haven't liked it for 60 years. And that's why I just asked it. Did they put the quietus on? Did they put the pressure on to fire uh, Tucker? I don't know. I mean, there's no way for me to know. But as I concluded my article, I said, if it did happen, I certainly it would, certainly wouldn't surprise me. Well, it's interesting just to talk about it, and that's the idea of an article. You put forward your uh, thesis and get people to think, you know, do I agree with that or not? And there were several things that he had. I mean, he had Jimmy Dore on, and he, they talked about the, the problems of Syria and, uh, and, and, and just many things and this whole Ukrainian war about what are we funding and how much money are you going to just keep pumping in there to bankrupt the Soviet Union, I mean Russia, you know, and then... And then uh, sanction after sanction after sanction, and, you know, it's the American dollar that's falling down now. So uh, it, it is interesting that, uh, that the opposition to him uh, seemed to happen very quickly. It's just like, you know, this guy's gone too far. And he's oh, the number one guy. That's three million or so people a night watching him, way more than CNN or anybody else, right? You know, and uh, uh, then he's gone. Oh, it's fascinating because he was he was truly rattling some cages. I mean, he, he's a very impressive guy in that sense that he was taking on issues that you're not going to find in the mainstream press or on on national television. And he was rattling cages. And my hunch is that <laughs> yeah, well, it he seemed to be new because I, I had known him before when he was. Uh, oh, what was that show that they were on when Jon Stewart uh, kind of ridiculed them? Uh, Crossfire and that, you know, and I just, he had that little bow tie and, uh, you know, it, it, it was just too much for me, right? And uh, I don't even, I turned off CNN and I never had Fox Channel here, so I'm in Vancouver, Canada. And, uh, but, you know, you see stuff on the internet, but then, and I'd say in the last six months, maybe even a little bit longer, you started hearing that, oh, I was on the, Tucker Carlson show and, and he you know gave me a level playing field and let me let me put you know a different side of the story that I normally you wouldn't think would happen right and it just kept hearing more and more that I I think maybe he's uh, 
you know, coming around a bit. And uh, they don't want that. They want total propaganda. When you when you hear the revelations in the Twitter files, though, how the FBI set up a whole wing for their disinformation and censorship, you know, they making request to Twitter, you got to ban this guy, you got to ban that, we can't have this stuff going out. They said, we can't keep up with it, right? We, you, you know, we're going to need a whole wing of people to do this. Oh, how much would that cost? Well, about $3 million. Don't worry, we'll fund it. You know, we'll bring our own guy in. And before you know it, um, uh, it's a shambles, free speech. And, you know, not, not that you know, Twitter's the end all of free speech, but it's just, uh, you know, kind of the canary in the coal mine. If they're censoring everything, it's bad enough with, uh, with the way Wikipedia is run and, um, and people being dumped off of Facebook and YouTube and, uh, you know, or, or demonetized, right? We don't feel advertisers would uh, uh, like your content, right? That's what happened to me, right? Well, I think I do think it's important to draw a distinction between private entities that I think have a right to decide what people publish there. I mean, like a private newspaper, if they don't want to accept my op-ed talking about the JFK assassination, I think that's their right. But what we've discovered is that the government's been pressuring these people to take these positions. And that, to me, is what is ominous. Uh, now, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's why the, our, our ancestors enacted the First Amendment, that they knew that government would attract these kind of people. And they wanted to send a message that this is not to be countenanced. So it doesn't surprise me that this pressure goes on. But I, I think it's important that that all of us, libertarians, conservatives, liberals or whoever, take a firm stance against this type of conduct and then leave private entities to decide for themselves what they want to publish, what they don't want to publish. As long as there's freedom of entry and freedom of competition, you know, I, I'm, I'm, ra I'm rather indifferent to that aspect of it. I just want to keep government out of the process. And of course, that's kind of where I feel it started from, that when they flexed their muscles and removed John F. Kennedy, then they got rid of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King is the same thing. Uh, he's going to end this Vietnam War. He's going to have a, another march on Washington, D.C., and we got to get rid of him, too. And how many other people that uh, had a demise that we just don't know about, but they nipped in the bud? I mean, we were saying even uh, John, uh, John, John, John Kennedy Jr., right? You know, there's something really suspicious with that plane crash, and I haven't had time to really go through that, but I just wouldn't be surprised, you know? No, you can't be, you, you can't be surprised if it turns out that they were engaged in widespread assassinations. I mean, this is what they do. Uh, we know that's what they do. They, they had an assassination manual as early as 1952. You can see it online. It's called A Study of Assassination and where they talk about methods of assassination, and, and they also talk in terms of how to keep it secret, uh, how to keep the, the CIA from being involved in the assassination so that people don't discover that the CIA orchestrated it, like throwing a person off a top-story building and making it look like a suicide. Uh, we know they assassinated Patrice Lumumba, the head of the Congo, because they they thought that he was a threat to national security. They had an assassination list in Guatemala in 54. I mean, this is shortly before the Kennedy assassination. And uh, I mean, and then you've got the, the Chilean coup, which is very similar to the Kennedy assassination, where the national security establishment there went to war against their democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, and tried to assassinate him. And he was left dead at the end of this thing. So you, you know, nothing would surprise me about it. this is what life is like living in a military nation under a national security state. 
Um, and, and it's not just the assassinations. There's the torture. There's the secret surveillance. I mean, you know, and what's laughable is they say, oh, well, we're protecting your freedom. They're the ones who have destroyed our freedom, Lynn. You, you can't consider yourself free and under a national security state form of governmental structure. This is a, a totalitarian form of governmental structure. When you're living under a, a form of government that has the power to assassinate you, the omnipotent power, non-reviewable power, the, the federal courts have already said they will never interfere with the CIA's and the Pentagon's assassinations. I mean, look, look they, they assassinated that Iranian general. I mean, we're not at war with Iran. This is just out and out straight murder. And, and they, they murdered this guy, but nobody's brought up on charges. In, in 1970, they, the CIA orchestrated the kidnapping and assassination, really, of, of uh, Rene Schneider. He was the commanding general of the Chilean Armed Forces. Now, the CIA has always claimed, well, no, we were just orchestrating his kidnapping, not his assassination. Well, that's ridiculous. Because once he got kidnapped, they couldn't return him. They were trying to remove him because he was an obstacle to their coup plans. But in any event, under the law, when you commit a felony and somebody's killed, you're responsible under the murder statutes. Did anybody get indicted for murdering Schneider? No, nobody did. And, and that conspiracy was right here in McLean, Virginia and Washington, D.C. There, there's no question about that. And when the Schneider children filed suit for the murder of their father in federal district court, the federal courts threw them out on their ear and said, I dare you think that we're going to interfere with the CIA and the Pentagon's power of assassination. They're the experts in this area. That's what we're living under, Lynn. This is the kind of system we're living under. And unfortunately, all too many Americans consider this is a free system, that they're living in a free country when they live under omnipotent government. <laughs> well, uh, my favorite quote, my, my very favorite quote is by Johann Goethe, the, the great German thinker, who said, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And that quote describes the plight of the American people. Yeah. And, you know, I have some questions about 9-11. And uh, should you consider that it was an inside job, then you wonder about, well, then all those people that ended up in Guantanamo Bay uh, hurried out of the caves or whatever and uh, arrested who they don't even know what the charges are, all that torture that went on. Uh, how many of those people just were in the wrong place at the wrong time in Afghanistan or somewhere in it? Like I said, sheep herders, goat herders, and uh, it's all a show. And then it, it was it about two weeks ago that they said uh, it's a kind of a revelation coming out that two of the pilots uh, that, that crashed planes were now uh, CIA informants. You know, did you hear that? Uh, no, I didn't hear it. Oh, I'll have to find that and I'll email you the clip. It's just it's like, oh, OK, yeah, it's going to take about another 30 years for things to come out about what really went on in 9-11. And then you wonder. Uh, well, look, at I just wanted to make sure that people got to know that you have a series going on and uh, at the Future of Freedom Foundation, which you run, there's quite a few articles. There's like trending articles and then the ones that uh, I wanted to talk about where the um, the ones you have here on the 60th anniversary of, of JFK. And um, there's quite a bit here. So uh, FFF.org. And uh, like I mentioned, it's called the JFK assassination 60 years later. 
and uh, you have several. Well, you mentioned you have up to seven episodes right now, so there's four of them available. I guess you're going to release them once a week or whenever, but um, um, a wide range of topics, And uh, but I think people will uh, like just, you know, some of the topics that have you as the author of here, right, which was, you know, JFK head wounds and uh, 60 years later and... Uh, and uh, the many assassinations that have you have. Um, so I think we've done that. So before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to bring up that I didn't get to? That uh... no, I, I think you've you've done very well, masterful job of the big picture here. Uh, you did mention that that you subscribe to our FFF Daily, and I would like to invite all your listeners to subscribe. It's free. We can. It's a libertarian commentary page every day. We, we take a lot of thought and care in selecting the articles that go into that commentary page, and we consider it the best libertarian commentary page on the Internet. And so, you know, some people will agree with us on some issues, disagree with us on other issues, but we our mission is to present the pure principled case for the libertarian philosophy, and that's what we've done for 33 years. So I would invite your listeners to subscribe, and then when you get that, you get the first notice like of this series, like today, um, part four, I guess, uh, went out in the FFF Daily. So everybody that gets the FFF Daily knows that they can now go access part four of my series. And uh, I, my, my goal in this series is that anybody that listens to this series by the end of it is going to be, uh, I think, have absolutely no doubts that this was a regime change operation and, and, the way I present this evidence, I think I think if people are going to find it quite persuasive. And if not interesting. Like I say, uh, there's so many people in the JFK research community that, that don't all get along, but you go, well, listen, I didn't know this, I didn't know that, and uh, and then even some things I drag my feet. It could be years and years until I come to the conclusion, you know what, this guy's right after all, you know? And, um, you know, I think a lot of people were like, for instance, like, you know, is that Lee Oswald in the doorway? Or is that love lady? What do you know? You you go well. You know, uh, you know. Convince me. Just then, you the, the more you look at it, you know, and and uh, so um, there's several things, but there's there's lots of things worthwhile of of reading other authors that you may or may may not agree with a hundred percent, as long as they're at the eighty percent level. That um, I think when people just look at Commission Exhibit three ninety nine, there's something wrong. All right. How far, how far are we going to get into this thing, right? Well, that's the point you make is very profound. You know, over the years, I've asked myself, why do so many, why are so many Americans reluctant to delve into this assassination? I mean, this is a big allegation. Uh, if the national security establishment really did this, like it did in Chile in '73, why don't people want to know that? Uh, I mean, I would want to know it, and and I think it's because people are very frightened over that possibility. What do they do with that information? Let's, let's assume tomorrow that there was a document found in the in the archives of the CIA saying, yeah, we did this and this is how we did it. That would be a very frightening thing, I think, to Americans because they, they look on the national security establishment as a god or as a parent that's taking care of them, they're keeping them safe. And all of a sudden they kept uh, them safe by assassinating the president. And I think that's the best explanation but for those that do want to seek this out, now I've got no problems with somebody that delves into the evidence and studies it and says, you know, I'm not convinced. Okay, 
I have problems with people saying, I don't want to know. Don't tell me anything. I, I just don't want to know. I mean, that to me is like a very unhealthy attitude. Uh, but if people do want to know, let me recommend some resources. The, the very best book that you can ever read in this area is an introduction to the Kennedy assassination. It's called JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. Absolutely remarkable, very profound book. Once you start reading it, you find that it's not just an assassination book. It's, it's a book that makes you think at a very deep level, uh, very profound. And um, then I'd also recommend, of course, our books, uh, An Encounter with Evil, my book, The Kennedy Autopsy, Kennedy Autopsy 2, Morley's book, CIA and JFK, um, uh, Horn's book, JFK's War with the National Security Establishment. But the, the, and then there's, there's, there's other, other great books. I mean, there's no question about it, but the, the big watershed book for me is Doug Horn's five-volume book. It's not an easy read. I'll tell you that right off the bat. Uh, in fact, I would recommend reading my two books, The Kennedy Autopsy and The Kennedy Autopsy Two, which are really easy to read synopses of, of Horn's book. That was my goal there, to give people an easy to read introduction. But Horn puts it all together. It's just that he has mastered so many complex subjects like photography, x-ray, medical evidence. But sometimes it's difficult to understand sections of his book. But if you just keep moving on and not worry about the parts you don't understand, by the end of Horn's book, you will definitely, I think, definitely conclude this was a regime change operation. So that, those are just some, some introductory books that I would recommend. And people check out the Future Freedom Foundation. And uh, like you said, it's a free page. I get it daily, so um, or however often it does come out. But um, all right, Mr. Hornberger, thank you very much for sharing your time with me tonight. And uh, we'll make links to everything that we spoke about today. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Well, thank you, Lynn. Like I told you earlier on, it's great to be back. And it's always an honor and a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for according me the honor of inviting me back to your show. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Thank you. We'll talk again. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.